Hello and welcome to the Evolve podcast, hosted by me, Simon Bocco, where I interview successful people who talk openly and honestly about the journey they've been on to become the person they are today, sharing stories, insights, tips and anecdotes along the way. It's a great opportunity to learn from entrepreneurs, business leaders, creatives and technologists who've all taken very different paths to success. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Evolve podcast. I'm joined this week by Austin Braley. Welcome, Austin. Hello, thank you for having me on. I feel a bit uh, bit nervous, if I'm honest, but um, it's nice to be on what's, this side of what's things. What's there to be nervous about? You're, you're, you're a PR professional. You do lots of chats. Yeah, but that's the thing. I'm normally in the, in the background uh, giving my uh, what so-called expert advice on things, and now I'm actually the one being interviewed. It's, uh, it's very strange. I think though you've got a really interesting story because I think you know we've known each other for quite a while and uh, like Cliff a few weeks ago you've had the displeasure of both living with me and working with me so we know each other quite well and I think you've got had been on a really interesting journey from kind of working in PR agencies starting your own business moving around the country doing different things so I thought it'd be good to start off with a bit of an introduction about what you're doing now and then we can talk about some things around the past and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I am, well, I guess I'm Mr. Red Five Comms. It's a small business that I started six years ago. Started it with the, the simple guide, the simple ethos of doing good work for nice people. And that's still the case. And it's, it's worked. Over that time, I built up a, a client list of retained clients, sort of commissioned people to help with, with bits of work here and there as, as needed. Uh, but I, now I'm at a stage where, I'm sort of gearing up for the next six years or so, trying to concentrate on uh, Red 5 Comms 2.0, if you like. Uh, and that's a case of going around being a much, much less cool version of Nick Fury. So trying to assemble my own little group of uh, Avengers. So people that are sort of like myself, but specialists in other areas, or you know, I can call upon and actually build into plans uh, and retainers and use them on an ongoing, an ongoing basis. So going around, you know, talking to great, Great writers, people that are experts in paper, click and and such, and that's so I can scale a, a little bit more because I've never had great plans for world domination uh, of build an agency in a traditional agency model. That hasn't been a focus when I when my time has been full. I kind of that has been full. So you just uh, say when a new lead comes in or something. Sorry, but. There's no more time, or, or when client needs more resource. That's the thing that's been a little bit tricky when they when they say, "Let's can we scale up a bit?" And you say, well, "I haven't actually got the time. I want to be able to now, well, offer that." So I remain the day to day contact and uh, responsible for the client relationships and actually stay doing the do, but then also have these people, trusted people that I can call upon uh, to help sort of yeah increase the amount that I'm able to offer. I think the interesting thing, sorry to interrupt there, is yeah. just on that, is about how you made quite a big leap. So obviously, I think you were working in London, obviously had a good salary. And actually, what a lot of people do is, you know, potentially try and bring a client from their business or so on. But actually, you took the decision to go back to Swindon, cut your costs right down to the bare minimum, and then use that as a foundation to build a business that, that you wanted to build, like you say, working with nice people and doing good work as opposed to having that gun to your head and saying, look, I need to just bring in a client to deliver something. So I, th- I think it would be kind of interesting to talk about that that decision and how that that piece worked and the benefits of taking an approach like that. Yeah. So the, the agencies I work for were massively important in getting the experience and knowledge and know-how 
of how these things work. So when I moved up there, it was to an agency called, uh, called RacePoint. It was uh, founded by Larry Weber, who uh, is also founded Weber Shanwick, and some awesome people that work there and got to work on some great clients. I moved over to Firefly, which is um, quite a well-known agency, especially back, back in the day. And I ended up working there for about, um, I think it was four or five years and sort of worked my way up the ranks. What happened was my nephew was born um, <laughs> here in Swindon. And that to me was kind of a big sign up. I kind of want to be around for that, um, him growing up. So shout out to Mason Greenshields. Uh, he definitely won't be listening to this, but I'm going to shout out anyway. And um, one listener I've lost. <laughs> well, he's only, he's only seven, so... Uh, <laughs> Probably not your target um, demographic, but I made a decision then really that it was about time to, to move back home. And I always thought as well, if I, if I wanted to start a family, I, I kind of wanted to do it here. So they were around their grandparents and their, their aunties and uncles. I thought that having a family around was really something that I, I was keen, keen to have. It's not something that I had when I was younger and I was quite keen for, for uh, my eventual offspring <laughs> to, uh, to have that. So, um, yeah, decision really and, and Firefly were great at the time in helping me moved back I, I kind of started working from from home for firefly and um this was before it was like a huge thing to have you know a common thing to have people working from home on a regular basis especially in agency life where it's quite important to go in i worked for them and i also uh, then made the decision that, that i would sort of be a, a freelancer so work with others as well and then i worked with another great agency called sonus pr and then it sort of came to a point where i was thinking well i'd quite like to just you know do my own thing and have my own clients directly rather than going through what is essentially somebody else's agency right because you sort of mentioned there um you're not you're not completely in control of what work you take or, or who you work with and i was quite keen to sort of maybe maybe i was being too picky but i wanted to cherry pick the uh the best clients if that makes if that makes any sense so the ones that were really quite exciting to work with but were also just really really cool people um and i, th I thought that probably was doable because of my experience uh, and you and working in agencies, you have a whole range of clients, right? But, but secretly, the ones that you want to work on are the nice people that are kind of have realistic expectations, listen to your advice, that, you know, take action. And I was thinking, what if you could just work with those? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be awesome? Didn't know if it was going to work. So started out and it was a bit of a, a feeling process. I was lucky enough to have my old bosses sort of recommend. Uh, clients that approached them but probably weren't quite at the scale of those big agency spend if you know what I mean but sure. were perfect for me um, so I had that sort of new business generation which was nice just being fed fed through to me and um, yeah I just have open conversations with people at big at the time I was like I'm going to be going to be completely truthful if it's if it's not what you want to hear then it's probably what you need to hear Again, you must remember this is me six years ago, so I have um, changed a little bit over over that time in terms of my what's the word, how I express that. Uh, it was quite it was quite a cathartic experience when I first started out, being able to be you know quite quite blunt and open and uh, think I don't quite see the world in the same way as I do as I do now. But it was um, yeah, it was great. I could I could speak to people, and if I if I thought you know what, you probably don't need PR at this stage. Go. You know, I, I would advise you to probably look in putting your spend in something else. And then once you get to a certain point, maybe then, but I'm always happy to talk, you know, and I just have that incredible freedom to do that sort of thing and not feel too much, um, too much pressure. So, uh, yeah. And it, and it worked because the clients that I got or came on board and we both sort of, we, we gelled were, were longstanding relationships that went for years. You know, it's not like a, a short churn. Somebody once told me that in the agency world, 
the business model was if you can get a client, you set the clock running and you expect to lose them within two years. And then the model is that you would be then pitching for work to replace that. And that's just the model. So another agency would pick up that work. You'll pick up somebody else's agency uh, work and the churn would just continue. The problem with that, of course, is it's not a great experience for the people working on that kind of stuff. Somebody always loses out at some, at some stage, whether it's the client that's not getting what they wanted or expected or whether it's the agency staff that are working on it. You know, probably it's not going to be a great experience if you're working with grumpy, unhappy clients and, you know, that kind of, kind of stuff. So that just didn't really sit, sit too well with me. And I thought, yeah, it's probably, hopefully there's a better way of doing that kind of thing. Because I think, I'm sure there's lots of people would have told you that you've taken a really idealistic view and that you're in dreamland that you can just work with nice people and cherry pick those and that's it. Did you, did you come up against that? And people who are quite traditional about things just didn't think that was going to work, that that could happen. And also, I think another question second to that is the quantification of, of nice and, and a good, good person to work with. And, and, and almost if, uh, one business is looking something for long term growth, how much they pay per month and looking at some quite hard metrics. How do you look at the softer metrics and think about who's going to be a good client for your business? The first question on whether people thought it was too idealistic. I don't think so, actually. I think people said, oh, good, good luck, like genuinely good luck with that. Um, I'd be interesting to see if it works. And I know that some of the people that I spoke to back then have gone on to do similar sort of things. You know, people that were really, really good at what, what they did have sort of looked at what, what I did and thought, oh, well, maybe it could, uh, it could be, and it's not because of me. I'm not putting, I'm not saying I was this great inspiration or anything like that, but, um, if I can do it, they can do it as well. That's probably more what I'm saying. And you must remember that one of the things you also talked about is that I was quite realistic in what could be achieved. It wasn't like I was trying to change the world or, or build a huge empire myself. I was right. Let's strip back costs to a bare minimum and start this business, not borrowing any money or, or risking anything. If, if, Worst comes to worst, I can, you know, go off and get a job somewhere else. It's not like uh, I'm taking a huge risk here. I sort of managed that right down. And then so for the, the, the second question, I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, just remember there was a second question. How you quantify what a nice or good client is. So, so looking at some softer metrics rather than some, some harder ones and, and, and how you did that. You can tell normally, I find that the, the, the thing I like to do before starting or jumping in with a client is really spend the time ahead of actually any commercial agreement getting to just talk to them and knowing and suggesting and bouncing ideas around because a few weeks of doing that and you, and you will know um or i i feel like i know whether they are the type of client that you would gel with and hopefully they feel the same about you you don't get that luxury necessarily in a big commercial model because it's time that you are investing you're not getting paid for that necessarily you're not getting you know, paid for all that upfront work. But I think it's something that pays off massively in the long run. Like if you're in a big agency, they'll obviously want to get the, the client on and billing straight away. And then within a few months, you know, the account team are probably only beginning to truly get under the skin of the client, at which point the client's asking, where's our results? <laughs> and you're not off to a best start. And again, a comparison I make is, and again, maybe this isn't very politically correct, so you might not want to use this or I might not want to say it, I'm going to say it anyway. Um, when you're first with a client, it's kind of like that stage of uh, a dating, right? When you're at, when you're at the beginning of, of dating someone, remember way back when, I've <laughs> been uh, <laughs> with my wife now for 10 years, uh, but I get the similar sort of thing. You, it's a huge, quite an intense period because you, you, you've got a lot to learn uh, about, about each other. 
and you're both sort of putting in a lot of uh, work to make sure that you you know giving off uh, the right thing when when you settle down a little bit it's because you've worked in, you settle down into a sort of a working relationship where you you know uh, about the other person you know what to do and what not 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 to do to it and whatnot so you've, you've already established that but it has taken up upwards investment uh, upfront investment to actually get to that stage i think and also it's kind of obvious right so if you're working if you're working with somebody or talking to somebody in those first few weeks and things aren't gelling i've had it there's one example that's burning in my head at the moment but i probably shouldn't talk about it where it just wasn't right and then you could just have the upfront conversation you can just say it's probably not the best fit for for either of us so maybe we should just like at this point before anything there's any resentment or anything like that just say you know we're not we're not gelling properly let's just let's move on you mentioned earlier about this being honest and, and that candid nature of how you operate and what you do and i think one of the things for me personally when i set my own business i felt that when you work for someone else you've almost got i don't know what it's just an agency marketing thing that you've got to be super friendly to everyone and this honesty is is not actually something that people seek you've got a hand up your back where you say you're almost like a puppet saying yes and agreeing lots and actually there's a real freedom and you realize that once you're honest and quite candid with people things tend to go better because like you said in in the world of of dating you've got a better relationship so interesting to to see how that approach has has benefited you and and how people react do you use that as a a qualifier as well so you know are you quite honest up front with people and if they want a yes person then you know that's not a good client for you how how does that bit come in yeah and if if they're the type of people that you can you can say just what you what you said there to and they are like yeah totally get that that's that's awesome that's cool then you you're already halfway there you're you're in the place place you want to be you know so it's not it's not anything overly complicated or hard to do it's just and I don't think it's anything, by the way, that's exclusive to agency worlds. It's probably if I was to go and work in, you know, a massive corporate, I would struggle a little bit with the hierarchical politics that come with it a little bit. Because I think most people, if you can have just a conversation on a, on a human, to human front without any ego or, you know, um, anything like that, then you're probably in a good place to do the best, best work you can. And I think, again, you touched on this in- instinct thing. So I think once you become uh, more seasoned, you, you you get a good feel for people and like I say, who's going to be a good client and who's not. But I think also where's a good place to work culturally and where's not a good place to work culturally. So I know some places that you've worked, like you say that there's been a, a proper value exchange and you stayed there for a long period of time and places that either culturally haven't felt right or not in line with how you wanted to do business and you haven't stayed there so long. So again, if it's possible to do so, if someone is is, is working and looking to start an agency or, or moving to different agencies, what do you think of those, those intangible things that you pick up from culture and you realize this is for me and this is not for me? Well, this is a, a really good, a really good question. And um, it, it makes me think of the book by Daniel Pink called Drive. He's got a few, few good, few good books but one of the things that he he talked about in there is he said too many organizations that they still operate from this uh, these assumptions about human potential and individual performance that are really quite outdated and unexamined and rooted more in in folklore than in in science to be honest Uh, and probably rooted in how we used to work when work was quite repetitive and different forms of motivation but perhaps I, i guess more applicable to work as it was then things have changed a lot and come a long way and 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 how you motivate people is a huge um thing that that, that companies should be really looking at especially now with 
I mean, there's everything going on in the news about people resigning, the great resignation and the competition for the best talent. So I don't think it's ever been more important um, than it is now. But uh, another thing that springs to mind is that a chap, I think he was a social social psychologist. He pops up in all kinds of stuff um, being, being referred to, but he had a really good line. And um, he was saying, when people say that money motivates, what they really mean is that money controls. And uh, and I think that's a good point. You you want to, ideally, uh, the way I see it, you want to end up in a, of course, of course, you want to be paid appropriately and you want to be paid well and you deserve to be rewarded for all the hard work you do and, and everything for, for sure. That should be, though, completely out of the question. That should just be a given, right? That should just be, you're paid, you're paid appropriately and then that's it. When it, when it becomes money becomes the sole motivator or the main motivator or, or withholding, you know, the risk of not being able to bring in a certain income becomes um, your main, main motivator for getting up in the morning. That is, is a very tricky um, place to be, I think, and probably not the best place to be. When you look at people and their the idea of success uh, and uh, they're really successful people high up in organizations, and this comes from um, actually speaking very closely to Alison O'Leary, who uh, who was my boss at, at Race Point, and she's gone on to really study um, and become uh, essentially a careers coach for people. Um, uh, you know, a lot of work goes into the psychology and everything of it. Uh, and one of the one a classic problem not many people see is that people get trapped in situations of you know supposed supposed success. But how successful is it when you you know you've got such a large amount of outgoings you want to maintain a certain quality of life that you think is important to letting other people you know you're supporting other people you're you want to give this perception you've earned this sort of status in life you can't step away from your you know big corporate job that's hugely paid you're essentially trapped in what you're doing and if that's success then i don't know it doesn't sound like you know hugely successful to me so you know humans aren't completely motivated by by money there's, there's lots of other things that go into their day to day and what they enjoy doing and when they're in a state of flow, uh, you know, and enjoying their work and getting reward from it. And, you know, the companies that get, get that and, and put, you know, real, real effort into motivating and encouraging and, and nurturing employees are going to be the ones, you know, to watch for sure, I think. Some people I'll speak to, they're trying to build the next Facebook or Google or they, they want to go to the moon and do something in cryptocurrency, but there's a real, contentment from you in terms of that balance and how you know once you get to that level that, that you feel comfortable with there's no, there's no need to go further because you have to take from one to give to the other if you see what i mean yeah yeah absolutely and that uh, and that's just me though as well I'm, I'm not sort of saying people have different goals and aspirations and it's not i'm not saying everyone should have to Certainly not that the thoughts of me. And I know people that, you know, incredibly driven to build businesses, um, that are, you know, um, say, I don't want to get too grand in saying life changing or world changing because, you know, unless you're working in something like cancer research, I, I think you've got to keep a, a level of perspective on things. But I also do know that when you start a business and founders and whatnot, I, I saw some research that helped me understand the founder mindset a couple of years ago. And I forget exactly um, where it was, but it was saying they'd hooked up these and it was male. It was male founders. I uh, don't know if that makes a difference, but they'd hooked up their, their brain patterns and, uh, and they sort of found that the responses they were getting were more intense when their, their business name was mentioned than that of their child. Um, because they are so incredibly invested in what they're building and it, it becomes something, you know, because the, 
the founders that go on and achieve remarkable things that, you know, putting in all hours, they're working flat out. And it's because they genuinely are so invested in what they're building. You got to, you got to admire that for sure. Um, it's probably not something for me or I would feel the same way about, but that's just me, you know? Um, and it's a good job those sort of founders are out there because they're building stuff that employs people and you know, improves lives for us and everything like that. So no, I'm not saying my way is the right way. I'm just saying <laughs> everybody has their own motivations. And I think any workplace has got to, got to recognize that different people have different motivations and, and sort of build things around that rather than just what is it? Old, old fashioned bonus schemes that are monetary and all that kind of stuff. I think the other thing that, that you mentioned, I think is the importance of your own instinct and guess what I would call trusting your gut. So we talked about that from a client perspective and who's going to make a good client because you've kind of more seasoned, you've been in the industry for a while, you understand what's going to work. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, if you're happy to do so, is the fact that you, you actually quit a job on your first day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that I, is I the old, uh, to me, and, and it's a story I tell everyone. So I, I couldn't not mention this on this podcast, but that is like to me, the ultimate instincts. You, you know, you, you, you had a gut feeling recognized very, very quickly. It wasn't the right thing and decided to get out. And actually some people might be saying, you know, what's this guy doing? Whatever. But for me personally, I think that's quite admirable. It's like, like you say that there's, there's no point pretending. It's like the dating thing. You go on one date. There's no point pretending that this is going to be a marriage and we should stick it out for however long. It's, it's just not going to work. It just doesn't feel right. So, so talk to you about that. And you don't have to give too many details, but, but like what went through your head? And I think ultimately I, I want to get a positive out of this, which is what, what the net learning from that process were, was and what you found out about yourself and what that led to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to put this into a little bit of perspective, the kind of situation that led to it is. I was quite happy in the job that I was in previously, right? So I was, I was working in, in London and, um, was having a, a good time and was enjoying the type of work I was doing. I think I got a little bit, uh, homesick, if I'm honest. And my thinking was, okay, uh, let's move back to my hometown and let's find a job closer by that I can commute to, but it's still in the same area. So, um, I, I kind of looked around and, and got in touch and, and secured the job and I finished my, finished my previous role and had the sort of going away party on the Friday. And I started the, the new job on, on the Monday. And I knew instantly that I'd uh, probably made the wrong decision. And it, and again, if we go use this dating analogy, I push it even further. It genuinely wasn't them or anything they did wrong. It was me. It's not you, it's me. Yeah. Like the worst yeah. dumping ever. <laughs> I know, but it, it was, it was true. They were, they were like a lovely organization, um, were very welcoming, you know, made the hiring process super easy. Uh, I rocked up <laughs> on the first day. I sat in my desk and, and it just, I just knew it wasn't right. And I knew that I, uh, done a silly thing really, essentially. And, um, yeah, I phoned up my old place on, on lunch and, uh, they said, yeah, can't, can't come back. At the end of the day, I asked to speak to the chap that hired me and again, a really, really nice guy and was just honest with him, really. And uh, as you might expect, he was pretty disappointed. Well, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't swear. I always get caught <laughs> up. So probably yeah, be a word that gets so. with P, I imagine. Yeah. 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 As he would be. Right. So it's nothing they did, they did wrong. And then this is this guy they've offered a job and they've made it easy for, and I've come in and I've not even given it, but after like, you know, a brief conversation, he was like, okay, right. Well, you better be off then. And, uh, 
to add a bit of uh, comedy even further to this, and I hope, I very much doubt he will ever listen to this, but if he does, I hope he can see the funny side of it now. I got up to leave and I had a pen in my hand and I, and I dropped it on the floor because I, I don't know why I was probably, it was an unusual circumstance to be in, right? Anyway, and I went down to pick it up and I just kicked it with one of my feet accidentally forward. So it just went even closer to him. Uh, and so I just sort of stumbled forward, picked up the pen and sort of shuffled out. And it just, I just thought that just sums up what's happened here. I've just, I've just been a bit foolish. It's um, a proper carry on. Yeah. It's it just comedy, really. Uh, hope, hopefully everyone can laugh about it now. But anyway, yeah, I started back at my, my previous job on the same day that my replacement started uh, on the following Monday. And yeah, I, I moved back to London and then was couch surfing for a while and, and then took that job. So yeah, a lot of people actually like that story and they think, oh, good for him. Like, uh, he knew instantly. And I, I, I guess I did, but also at the same time, it was silly on my behalf and uh, at the expense of uh, some nice people. So I, I kind of look at it and go, yeah, we can laugh at it now. But, um, yeah, sorry. Sorry to the guys that I, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, probably wasn't, wasn't great for them. And, if, uh, if we can, I said, put a, a positive on that. What's your learning from that? And how has that put you in? I guess, good stead for the future. Cause I think we always, I can't remember there's a phrase that's somewhere, but about learning from your mistakes. You know, if, if you're, if you're always successful, you're never learning, but, but you do learn from your mistakes. So, so that was quite a big one. It, although it doesn't feel like much to actually move out of your flat, leave your job, move somewhere else. And then a week later, go back to all of it again. There's actually a lot of upheaval and a lot of bother. So what did you learn from that process? Positives for me, and again, I don't want to make this sound callous because there's not too many positives for the uh, for the company that I kind of let down. But for, for me, it was firstly, I knew that it was the right decision. Finally, although I'd made silly decisions up to that point and got myself in that position, I knew that going back was the right thing to do and what I wanted to do, and it added clarity. It also made me think in future that although it was a very difficult thing to do, that that I did it, and anything beyond that is is not terribly difficult you know if you if you want to have difficult conversations with people and things like that but uh, and also um over time since then this was going back quite you know a long time 10 years or or more i, I over my my career i've mat- not yeah I, I have matured a lot now so one of the things I, i've learned as well is to not be so immediately reactive to things um so although it was probably the right decision in hindsight now i can see things for a bit more for you know take a step back review be more patient, take a bit more of a, a, an outside view of things. Yeah. And it also made me much more determined not to ever do that sort of thing again. So if you look at my career since I've been, <laughs> I've been places for a long time when I joined, because it's about making the, make sure you're making the right decision at the beginning uh, for things. So yeah, there were, there were a few positives from it and we can all look back and, uh, and laugh about it. And lots of people do. And laugh at I me. do. I've told that story secondhand about five times. <laughs> so I think I just say I had to get it out. But um, I guess moving on to the discipline in which you operate in, so, so, so public relations, communications, now more so marketing. How do you think that's evolved, obviously, with the introduction of, of digital and online communications? And what, what makes a good story and how does that work? Because I, I used to, my very first job was in PR, uh, as you know, and, and uh, I think even my second job was, in fact. And it was, for, for, for me, from the outside looking in, it feels like it hasn't changed that much. It's still about good stories aligned to a particular agenda that's interesting to a publication and a relationship with someone on a desk. But that's, I feel, potentially oversimplified. If, if you, if you want to build a reputation for a business and you want to get traction within certain media, what is the best way in which to do that? Public relations 
is a bit broader. So it's the, the term I like, uh, that I've heard it described out that I like is it's the effective communication between an individual or an organization and its publics and publics more simply is just those that matter to its success. That could be, that could be anyone, right? So perspective, perspective customers, existing customers, investors, partners, employees, all of those are examples of people that are important to make sure communication is, is done effectively. For the majority of businesses though, and what you were talking about there as well is the goal of gaining, you know, exposure to audiences through organic or earned publicity. So unlike advertising, PR doesn't rely, you can't pay for placement or shouldn't be able to pay for placement with things. You've got to kind of tell compelling stories that reach the, uh, the intended audience. And the way PR has traditionally done that is through establishing uh, relationships with journalists, so media relations, and because previously journalists have had this unparalleled reach to, to audiences that nobody else has had, right? Because they have readers, listeners, viewers. Um, so then the whole thing, a lot of PR agencies are geared towards getting media coverage. And then to do that is what you're referring to there is coming up with stories or telling stories in a way that is of inherent interest to the journalists to then cover and you reach the people you want to reach. And as you said, things probably haven't changed a tremendous amount. One thing that has changed is there's a lot less media around. You know, publications okay. and magazines are dying off all the time. So back in the olden days, you know, you hear stories from the 80s and 90s, people do a press release, send it out, and then just count the coverage that came in. Pretty simple stuff. Now it's really competitive. There's something like five PRs for every one journalist. So you can imagine the amount of targeting journalists get for uh, their attention and, and what takes precedent. And so, yeah, it's a very competitive space for what is what is achievable now. But what goes along with that is, you, therefore, the value of a really good PR person is to cut through all of that content pollution or pitch, you know, bad pitches and things like that is it, it, very high. But then also marketing and the way that you can go directly to those Publix has also changed. So whether it be social media or emailing or showing up on where they're searching online or, or appearing in, you know, organic searches. So what they're searching for, you're, you're kind of appearing. There's a whole bunch of ways now that the brands and, and companies can go straight to consumers. So I think it's much more now about the balance of having that marketing and public relations. Uh, media relations still has a really important part to play because you have the independent third parties talking about you. So you have the credibility. If you're being, a, if you're constantly appearing in high profile publications, there's just, you're, you're, you know, you're being seen to be a leader in that space, somebody that's a go to a source of information. So I was talking to someone the other day who, who works in PR and they said, and the thing is, I do this now as a client as well, which is probably potentially annoying. But the thing I always want to know is whether you've got relationships with a particular publication and you must get that all the time. So it's like, I want to get in Wired magazine. Do you know someone who works at Wired? And their response was always be, it's about the story. It's about the content. And whether I know someone at Wired or not is irrelevant. What's your view on that? Yeah, it's really interesting you asked that because, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm looking back now. Uh, there's somebody that, posted about this the other day and I thought they expressed it perfectly. So he was a chap called uh, Parry Hedrick and he's a founder of Crackle PR who I, who I wasn't familiar with until I saw this and he he was doing a, a sort of simulation of an exercise that he experiences. So CEO, so which reporters do you know in our space? And uh, him coming back saying plenty, but to be candid, 
that really doesn't matter. My own twin brother wouldn't write about my client if the story is lame. Spot on, bang on. And, and I, I would say exactly the same thing, right? Some of my um, good friends that are journalists have never given me stories and I wouldn't expect them to because if you're a good PR or good at what you do, media relations, you wouldn't need or want to call favors with them. And, and they shouldn't, they really shouldn't give you favors anyway, if, if I'm completely honest. I guess the only thing that they, that you may get a competitive advantage in is they may be more willing to read uh, a pitch from you. So I can definitely see that happening. So if you email a friend or somebody you know, like a contact, they may open it and read it. Doesn't matter though, because if they, what they read is rubbish, they're not going to go and give you a news story because you're a friend. So don't subscribe to that, that school of thought. And, and, and if they are the type of journalists that would do that, they're probably not working for a very reputable <laughs> place anyway. And therefore, what is the value of appearing there? I think though, what I probably would say is, and, uh, you tend to work with quite a few tech businesses from my understanding is having a, a a sector specialism or at least a, a decent understanding of the sector w- will help though. So I don't know, you, you might not necessarily have someone who uh, is your best friend on, on the wired news desk, but you understand the intricacies of AI so you can write about it and represent the business in the right way. Is that fair? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for, for sure. That is what makes, makes a difference. And also, so relationships in terms of a friend doesn't matter, but having a relationship where you are a reliable source is completely different. So if you are talking about AI and you read the, per- the journalist's work and you contri- contribute to, to stories and stuff when you're not expecting anything in return, then you're building a relationship with them, right? So it's completely different than me. I personally have a friend that I would, you know, go and, uh, I don't know, play tennis or whatever with and having somebody that you know knows their stuff and is somebody worth listening to on a subject, that is, that is completely different. Thought leaders, knowledge experts, and building that is, is, is imperative because when they get something from you, you they know it's going to be of high value. They know that you're not just going purely to get a plug for whatever you, you do. You're, you're, you know, you contribute. They want some information that's not, not going to be quoted to you just as background. You're willing to help. If you see something that is, you know, somebody else has done, no connection, no commercial interest, you're just contributing as an organic process. That, that is the way you do media relations properly. And finally, uh, I wanted to talk about the future a little bit in terms of where you see the industry heading, because like I said, I think some things are still there that, that I haven't worked in PR for 15 years and still some things are there and some things have changed. Where do you see the industry heading and what, what do you think the future is to be successful in, I guess, presenting your, your business in the right way to your publics? So on the, on this, I think I'll refer back to on, I think it was the second episode you did with Cliff from Brand Genetics. And he mentioned, um, a quote from, uh, Jeff Bezos, who, which I hadn't heard before, but it was something along the, along the lines of when, when Jeff was asked, when people ask him what's going to change in 10 years, his response was he was more interested in what wasn't going to change in 10 years because he could build a business around that. And I thought that was a really good quote. I hadn't heard it before, but it reminds me a lot of um, something that Bill Burnback, who is a famous sort of creative and advertising legend, um, said. And he he said, uh, it's kind of ingrained in my head now that it took millions of years for man's instincts to develop. And it will take millions more for for that to even vary. So although it's it's sort of fashionable to talk about changing man, uh, a communicator must be more concerned with unchanging man. Now, that that doesn't mean... That we necessarily how know everything already. Far from it. 
In fact, I think there's a hell of a lot of work that needs to be done in the future of our industry is better understanding humans as uh, who they are uh, and appreciating them as humans. Uh, you look at the vast majority of, of communications and efforts and they don't really work, um, especially in advertising and marketing. There's, there's very little cut through. It's just noise. And Brian Sharp, um, sort of, <laughs> he's a professor of marketing science. Uh, again, somebody that's uh, spoken, you know, a bit, a bit of a little bit of a hero of mine. And he says that the study of marketing is still really young and would be arrogant to believe that we're even sort of mastered the basics yet. And he, he draws on an analogy from the medical practice that for centuries, uh, there was this noble profession that attracted some of the best and brightest in society. And yet for, uh, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years, they, they went enthusiastically went about doing practices as a bloodletting, uh, uh, generally useless and often fatal method of treating people. It's only very recently that the medical profession has started doing things today that, you know, like blood transfusions that save lives. And marketing managers operate in a little bit like medieval doctors. This is his argument. So working on anecdotal experiences and impressions and myth-based expectations. But I think the future of this industry is, is behavioral sciences and understanding humans as they truly are and how they like to be spoken to and, and how they like to be targeted to, not based on these, these false you know, assumptions, because we're actually very complicated. And although we're, we're largely irrational, we're, we're sort of rational in a predictable way. Yet we, we seem to target and, and use methods that are based on false assumptions. So anyway, that's a bit of a long-winded uh, answer, but I think that's, that's the future. That's where it should be. Brilliant. And actually probably a really good, good place to finish. So opportunity for a shameless plug. Um, you're far too modest and, and, and far too humble to do it. So I'm going to do it on, on your behalf. So Red Five Communications, Austin Braley. If you're a nice client, actually, I think, and, and, and you, you, you feel that you're aligned to the way that Austin does things, uh, by all means, I'm sure you won't, <laughs> won't be offended if someone reaches out to you in, on LinkedIn and gets in God, touch. It's making me look like I'm um, some kind of auditioning for clients. It's not, it's, um, <laughs> no, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's the thing that we to chat to anybody, you know, and no, it's not, I'm the furthest away from a hard sell person. I, really hate that stuff but i do like just batting That's around ideas. For you. <laughs> yeah 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 but i really like batting around ideas you know and see if there's anything to be done there there may not be there may be some really cool stuff that's that's basically it perfect well thanks very much austin appreciate it thanks for having me on and that wraps up another episode of the evolve podcast i hope you've taken inspiration and learned something from this week's interview and i'd love to see you here next week so please do subscribe if you're interested in finding out more about what we're doing at evolve be sure to check us out by visiting goevolve.co.uk. And finally, remember, in business and in life, you never stop evolving. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>